We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Second Corinthians chapter 13. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Good morning. My name is uh, Sam. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus. If we haven't had a chance to, to meet yet, I hope we do. And I hope that uh, your time here is refreshing. If you're visiting, our prayer is that you would be confronted with the person and work of Jesus and that God would be gracious to increase your affections for him. And so that's what we're praying for in this sermon, like every sermon. Uh, I have one announcement for you, and uh, that is that April 24th and 25th, we are having our second annual Emmaus Women's Retreat, and uh, it is going to be a great time. We had a, a, a lot of great feedback from last year, um, the ladies that attended that. So it's a good time to get to know some of the other ladies at Emmaus and uh, just be refreshed, um, encourage one another, fellowship with one another, press into the word together. And so the deadline for that is March 11th. You've got the information there. Deadline is March 11th. Um, cost is $100. So you can find out more information through our social media and uh, on our website. And that is my announcement. So uh, with that said, I'd like for us to finish this glorious letter, um, 2 Corinthians, together. And before we do that, we need uh, God's help. So would you join me in prayer? Our Father, be with your people now. Fill your servant with your spirit and let your people hear the voice of their good shepherd this morning. Call in those who are lost and wandering. Lord, for those who are yours and just don't know it yet, may you be pleased to bring them into your fold this very morning. And Lord, for those who are not yours yet and think they are, do the same for them. Overcome their resistance and awaken their wills. Lord, comfort your children who are downcast. Convict your children who are wayward. 
These are not things that I can do on my own, Lord. So please speak through me this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On July 1st, 1750, Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest theological minds America has ever seen and the leading figure in the revivals that later came to be known as the Great Awakening, preached his farewell sermon to his sermon in Northampton, Massachusetts, where he had served as pastor for 23 years. His pastorate ended abruptly in controversy over a theological dispute that many evangelicals today would consider um, a minor theological dispute, and yet it was a big enough deal to uh, force Edwards out of his pastorate. And in that farewell sermon on July 1st in 1750, a heart-heavy Edwards spoke these words to his congregants. I have spent the prime of my life and strength in labors for your eternal welfare. You are witnesses that what strength I have had, I have not neglected in idleness, nor laid out in prosecuting worldly schemes and managing temporal affairs for the advancement of my outward estate and aggrandizing myself and family. But I have given myself to the work of the ministry, laboring in it night and day, rising early and applying myself to this great business to which Christ appointed me. I have found the work of the ministry among you to be a great work indeed, a work of exceeding care, labor, and difficulty. Many have been the heavy burdens that I have borne in it, to which my strength has been very unequal. God called me to bear these burdens, and I bless his name that he has so supported me as to keep me from sinking under them, and that his power herein has been manifested in my weakness." So that although I have often been troubled on every side, yet I have not been distressed, perplexed, but not in despair, cast down, but not destroyed. We begin these words of a, with these words of a heartbroken pastor because I think Edwards well embodies the pastoral ache and groan that we see in the Apostle Paul in this letter who preaches who gives his farewell address to a church as a heartbroken apostle to a stiff-necked church as well. His heart, Paul's heart, has been aching for these people from the beginning of this letter, and this tone carries all the way to the very end. And as Paul completes his letter, we can hear his pleading before God that it would not be a bitter end. And so at the conclusion of this letter, Paul leaves the Corinthians with a final warning, a final exhortation, and a final blessing. So let's look at these together. A final warning beginning in verse 1. This is the third time that I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Well, what on earth is Paul getting at here? Well, he's giving a metaphorical application to Deuteronomy 19.15, which says, Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And the principle in this passage, from this book of Deuteronomy, this law that God has given to His people Israel many, many years ago, the principle 
of this passage is that every charge must be validated before a judgment can be rendered. So you can't just bring a charge against somebody and then bring down a punishment on them. The charge has to be validated by two or three witnesses, it says. And so Paul is applying that principle to this situation. His third visit is the third witness. He's saying, I've come over and over again, and I've seen these problems persist in Corinth, and if the problems are still there on this third visit of mine, then whatever judgment I bring down will be justified. And we know this is where his mind is, because verse 2 tells us, I warned those who sinned before, and all the others, and I warned them now, while absent, as I did when present my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Verse 3, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. We need to remember the charges that Paul is answering in this letter. Remember, the people of Corinth, we've talked about this all throughout this letter, the people of Corinth were a lot like the people of America. They were obsessed with self-image and self-aggrandizing displays of strength. And they were willing to trade Paul in as their apostle for these self-proclaimed super-apostles who come waltzing in with all the swagger they could hope for as a Corinthian people. They come waltzing in, and the Corinthian church is willing to replace Paul as their apostle for these guys because in the Corinthian estimation, he was the inferior, more embarrassing option. And along these lines, word began to circulate that Paul was a tough guy in his letters and a puny pushover in person. So they're saying, listen, listen, he's already been here two times, and you saw both times that he has no bite to his bark, okay? He's, he's, he's all jabber. He's, he's, he talks a big game in his letters, but he does not demonstrate power when he's among you. But now here in these verses, Paul is insisting that his posture toward the Corinthians has actually mirrored the ministry of Christ. That it wasn't accidental that he came first with weakness before demonstrating power. That's what Christ did. He was crucified in weakness. And Paul is now saying that he is prepared to mirror the ministry of Christ even further if the situation calls for it. What would that look like? Weakness first and then power. Be careful what you wish for, Corinthians, he is saying. And leading off with humility, I have followed the example of Christ. But the Christ that I follow now reigns in power. Weakness first, then power. I've been united to Christ in weakness, but the Christ to whom I am united is also powerful. And his power can come through me as well. In other words, the weakness, the weakness that they have been despising in Paul is a weakness that he is sharing with Christ. He's participating with Christ in this weakness. He is in the best of companies. And the irony is that they have been demanding to see a strength in Paul, but if that strength should show itself, if it should bubble up and show itself, that strength would also come from Christ. 
which is more than they are bargaining for. He's saying, you don't want to see Christ's power through me, Corinthians. Stick with his weakness in me. That's what you should prefer. Now, before we move on, we should notice this asymmetry in the language of this passage. Maybe you noticed it. Look at these verses. Paul says that he is weak in him who was crucified in weakness, but in dealing with the Corinthians, he will live through him who lives by the power of God. Paul is weak in Christ, and Paul is powerful through Christ. What's he getting at here? Well, the asymmetry in this passage is highlighting the fact that we have direct access to the weakness that Christ experienced because he was experiencing our weakness. His weakness was our weakness. That, that doesn't come natural to the second person of the Trinity. It's not normal for the second person of the Trinity to be weak and suffer and die. In order for him to do that, he has to add our weakness to himself, our nature. His weakness is our weakness. That's our natural state. Not so when it comes to power. No, Christ lives by the power of God. In other words, the power of God is something proper to him by nature. And we experience it, Paul's going to experience it, but indirectly through Christ. And so this passage is addressing both Christ's divine nature and this beautiful doctrine that we love to talk about at Emmaus, this doctrine of union with Christ, which is the doctrine that reminds us that any blessing Christians have from God is given to them through Christ. That he is the gift in whom are all other gifts. Through Christ, in other words, we receive by grace what belongs to Christ by nature. There is a kind of divine power that belongs to Christ by virtue of his divine nature. He lives by it. Okay, it's his. And we enjoy that power, not naturally, but graciously through Christ. Even Paul's apostleship is nothing in itself. All the authority that he has is through Christ. It's a derivative authority. So let this be a corrective for us in this age of self-worship in which we are told that the source of all strength and power and value and the secret to pure, unfiltered, undiluted awesomeness is to be found within ourselves. Paul disagrees, right? The Apostle Paul would disagree. We are weak by nature. That's normal for us. Any power worth mentioning that we experience as Christians is ours only by grace through Christ. All right, so that's, that's the first warning, this final warning uh, in this letter. Paul is telling them, I'm going to come to you and you better be in tip-top shape because if you demand to see power coming from me, it's going to be the power of Christ, and you're not going to find me as you wish. Now let's move on to his final exhortation, beginning in verse 5. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. So here in verse 5, Paul shifts pressure onto the Corinthians. Remember, all throughout this letter, 
his apostleship has been under examination. In fact, this letter in large part is a response to the demand for Paul to justify his apostleship. Prove your apostleship, Paul. And so now at the conclusion of this letter, Paul is in effect saying, listen, Corinthians, if there's anyone who ought to examine themselves, it's not me, it's you. You should examine yourselves. Now this is a strategic call for self-examination. Because if they determine, they test themselves, and if they determine that they are in fact in the faith, they thereby validate Paul's ministry. Well, why is that? It's because Paul was the person who led them to Christ. He is in effect saying, look down at your feet, Corinthians. Look at the foundation that you're standing on. Who laid that foundation for you? Is it not the foundation that I laid for you? Now, we'll return to this comment, this command to test yourselves at the conclusion of this sermon. But first, I want us to notice Paul's motivation for getting them to examine themselves. He wants them to test themselves and discover that Christ is in them and thereby validate Paul's apostleship, not merely because he is after a pat on the back. There is no self-interest here. Look at verse 7. He says, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything that is against the truth, but only for the truth. Paul's not after a pat on the back. He's after their obedience. He wants them to conform to his teaching of doctrine and practice, not to pamper his injured ego, but simply because it's the right thing to do. It is in accord with truth. And if they will conform to the truth, he has no case against them. He's like, I'm not against the truth. I'm against you right now because you are postured against the truth. But if you conform to the truth, my case against you will happily unravel. He's not holding a grudge. He wants for his case against the Corinthians to unravel. And we know that because of what we see in verses 9 and 10. He says, for we are glad... When we are weak and you are strong, your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you. That when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. He's pleading with the Corinthians to remember that he is not their enemy. I'm on your side, Corinthian church. I'm for you. I don't want to see you injured by my authority. I don't want to have to be severe with you. I want your restoration. That's what I'm praying for. And this pastoral heart is why Paul now concludes the letter the way he does. So let's look at this final blessing, starting with these charges beginning in verse 11. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Not wanting to leave a bitter taste in their mouths, Paul refuses to let a harsh warning have the last word in this letter. He ends on a hopeful note. He says, rejoice. He's saying, there's still a chance to rejoice, dear Corinthians. Our relationship need not end bitterly. It doesn't have to. 
He uses words like restore and comfort and agree and live in peace. These are charges that show he has no personal self-interest in this letter. He wants their good. He just wants their good. He wants Christian harmony to be evident because it is evidence of God's blessing presence among them. God is a God of peace, and where Christian peace is, there is God ministering. This is what he gets at when he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. This greet one another with with the kiss was a common enough expression. It means greet one another affectionately, right? You can think of, you know, mafia movies where you kiss on both sides. It's that sort of thing, this affectionate, endearing sort of greeting. But Paul adds holy, And he adds holy because he's trying to show us the kind of unity that he is after is a unity that is uniquely Christian. It's a unity that derives from a holy standing. Well, how do we create that kind of unity? Can we just manufacture it? Not at all. This is why Paul leaves us with the blessing that he leaves us, the benediction in verse 14. He says, the grace of of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. That is the grace that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus' grace, the grace, the love that comes from God, the Father's love, the fellowship that comes from the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit's fellowship. All of this unity that he is after, in other words, is rooted in the Trinity. It's rooted in our triune God, this eternally, perfectly united being. And we need to keep this in mind. We we are not praising three different gods who dreamt up a plan together. That's not what's happening with these distinct blessings coming from each person. It's not like we have Jesus and Jesus alone to think for grace and the Father, the Father alone to think for love. It's not like that. The Son's glory is is the Father's and the Spirit's. Where one is truly glorified, the Trinity is glorified. The persons of the Trinity are not in competition with one another. And this point is not a stretch to emphasize from this passage because Paul is issuing a single blessing to the Corinthians. This single blessing roots grace, love, and fellowship. All of these things essentially in the Trinity, even while they are experienced, they come to us experientially associated with three distinct persons. One commentator writes this, the blessing Paul pronounces, even with its distinctions, is to be regarded as a unity. In some sense, the grace of Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit signify a single reality in which the Corinthians are to participate. It's glorious. This is one of the strongest passages in all the New Testament to understand Trinitarian theology, from where we get our Trinitarian theology. Think about this, you guys. When Paul wants to bless the Corinthians with a blessing from God, he cannot help but offer that blessing with a Trinitarian shape. Well, why is that? Paul cannot... Paul's blessing from God has a Trinitarian shape because the God who blesses through Paul is triune. 
If he wants to issue a blessing from this God, it has to have a Trinitarian shape because this God is Trinity. And so this is how Paul concludes his letter to the Corinthians. He wants for them to pursue a unity that can only be explained by coming from the eternally united triune God. So where does this leave us? How ought we to respond to this passage this morning? I have two pastoral charges for us. The first is this. Let us examine ourselves and cling to Christ. Let us obey 2 Corinthians 13.5 and examine ourselves. Now, there is a delicate balance here, right? Because Paul, we need to know this, Paul is not advocating for morbid introspection, which is how 2 Corinthians 13.5 is often used, right? The reality that some people can be deceived and the charge to examine and test yourselves has led some to adopt the self-destructive tendency of always looking inward to one's faith to see its quality. But that's not what Paul tells us to do. He doesn't tell us to examine ourselves to, to see whether we have faith. He tells us to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. And there is a difference. It's a crucial difference. He's not inviting us to look inward and say, I know I have faith, but is it strong? I know I have faith, but is it the right kind of faith? Listen, I've said this before and I'll say it again. It's your, your personal faith is not a thing that should be examined. Your personal faith is a thing that should be used, okay? Your personal faith is not a thing to look at. It's a thing to use. It's the tool that you use to latch on to Christ because it's the object of your faith that matters and not the strength of your faith. The quality or strength or consistency of your faith is simply not the point. It's the object of your faith that matters. We need to remember that Paul is not inviting the Corinthians to examine themselves to see whether they have faith. The charge is to examine themselves to see whether they are in the faith, which means the weight does not fall on some personal subjective, existential feeling. It is objective. So this self-examination isn't morbid, introspective, navel-gazing of constantly looking inward. But, on the other hand, we must acknowledge that Paul really is calling us to a self-examination of another kind, right? Because there is some uncertainty for Paul here. He's not at all confident that 100% of the Corinthians are going to examine themselves and determine that they are in the faith. He's got some doubts in his mind about whether or not some of them are. And so this counteracts the other extreme, which is the tendency to passively go through life with no self-awareness and no self-examination of any kind. There really are people who think that they are Christians and are not. And these are the people that Paul is trying to get to walk out into the light. They are self-deceived. And they're deceived not because Christ is tricking them, okay? It's not like Christ is some dubious figure who's constantly eluding their sincere attempts to receive him by faith. No, they are deceived because they assume that general association with Christians amounts to saving faith. They just have never embraced Christ by faith personally because in their heart of hearts, they simply aren't convinced 
that they are desperate, black-hearted sinners in need of saving. There really are hell-bound churchgoers, brothers and sisters, and hell-bound churchgoers are the most tragic kind of hell-bound individuals because they're close enough to the living water to feel its drops on them as those around them come to scoop it up and drink it in, but they themselves have never tasted it. And that is a tragic reality. So Paul tells the whole Corinthian church to test themselves, and we should do the same. But what should this test look like? Well, it's not some arbitrary list that we compare ourselves to. The two biggest signs that raise doubt in Paul's mind as to whether the Corinthians are in the faith are that, number one, they despise Paul and his gospel message of weakness. They hate this message of weakness. So that's one sign that raises doubts in his mind. And then the other is that there is unrestrained, unrepentant, flagrant sin in the Corinthian church. So the test might look something like this. What do I think about Scripture, and have I made peace with my sin? Do I believe and hope in what Scripture teaches, and is there sin I refuse to name as such and repent of? Not is there sin in my life, but is there sin in my life that I refuse to name and repent of? Is there unrepentant sin in my life? And this test may sound obvious, brothers and sisters, but it is not to many. I have been in situations where I have looked at professing believers in the eye, and they have failed one or both of these tests without a second thought. Now, if this self-examination yields encouraging results, what should we do? Well, what else is there to do but praise our Lord Jesus Christ? Because it means that we really are a new creation. And we're not, a, we're not a new creation because we willed ourselves into being such things, but because God in his mercy has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is there left to do but gratefully throw yourselves upon the mercy of Christ, thanking him for thawing your cold heart and giving you eyes to see his worth? But on the other hand, if this self-examination doesn't yield encouraging results, and the situation looks pretty bleak, what do you do then? Well, the proper response is not to try harder. That is not the proper response if you determine that you are not in the faith. The proper response for you as well is to throw yourself upon the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, lamenting the coldness of your heart. Friends, Christ invites us to come to him with all of our sin, even the sin of faithlessness. Did you know you could repent of and ask for forgiveness for that sin as well? That is a glorious reality. So if upon the self-examination you conclude that the situation does not look good, at least now you know what to do about it. You come to Christ. You come to Christ with the empty hands of faith. You're not bringing anything to win his approval or to try to impress him. You come with the empty hands of faith. And if you do that, he will fill your hands with himself. This is why he came, friends. Christ came to live the perfect life to replace our imperfect life. 
He came to die this brutal sinner's death on the cross to atone for the sins that we deserve to pay for. He came to be resurrected, to blaze a trail for us to follow him in the resurrection, and to show definitively that his life and death for us is perfect and acceptable. And then he was ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he from there sent the Spirit to indwell us and seal us and apply all of these benefits to those who would receive Christ by faith. So if you examine yourself and determine that the situation doesn't look good, throw yourself upon the mercies of Christ and receive him. Receive all who he is for you. Listen, if you, if you remember nothing else this morning, I want you to remember this. Saving faith is not perfect faith. Saving faith is imperfect faith in a perfect savior. It's the object of your faith that makes the difference. Saving faith isn't perfect faith. Saving faith is imperfect faith in a perfect Savior. Charge number two. Brothers and sisters, let us love one another to the praise of the Trinity. It is no small thing that Paul blesses the Corinthians with the Holy Spirit's fellowship. He does this because the kind of fellowship that he longs to see in the Corinthian church is a divine fellowship. It's the kind of fellowship the persons of the Trinity enjoy eternally and incorporate us into in the gospel. Oh, may we see realized in our midst what Paul prayed for in the Corinthian church, a fellowship that is rooted in and sourced by the triune God. Oh, that we might taste a unity that transcends human ingenuity, a kind that could never be explained away by social engineering a kind that can only be described as divine and spirit wrought. Oh, that we would pray eagerly for the spirit of God to knit our hearts together in love because that is not something that can be manufactured. We cannot create that kind of unity ourselves. We need the spirit of God to do that for us. And brothers and sisters, that kind of fellowship will not abide self-love and self-worship. Self-love and self-worship will have to go, and good riddance. Every week we're privileged to see a picture of this gospel unity in the communion meal that we share. Rightly do we call this meal communion, for that's what it is. It's a fellowship meal. Fellowship with one another and fellowship with the risen Christ. And this meal is not a meal for you as an individual. You need to know that. It's not a meal for you as an individual. It's a meal for you if you are a Christian as a member of the body of Christ. This is a church meal. The cup of blessing that we bless, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? With this meal, brothers and sisters, we celebrate and enjoy the fellowship afforded us in the gospel. So if you're a Christian, you are invited to come and worship the risen and present Christ here at this table. Come and worship him here at this table. And you're invited to do so with an eye toward your brothers and sisters. Keep this in mind. The people that you see taking this meal with you are the people that you are called to love. 
and they are the people that you are commanded to pursue unity with. So resolve to do so. Pray for these brothers and sisters as you see them take this meal. Pray for them. And if God convicts your heart to pursue reconciliation and unity with any here today where there is disunity, be faithful and do it. Be faithful and do it. And if you're not a Christian, as uncomfortable as it may be for others to have to walk around you, we're going to ask that you please do not get up and take this meal with us. Do the brave thing and be honest with your actions. Right? This, this meal is a Christian meal. It's a meal for Christians. And so if you aren't one yet, rather than pretending like you are, we would invite you to become one for real. Right? So rather than inviting you to bread and juice, we would invite you to the risen Christ. And if you have any questions about the gospel or what that means, I invite you to ask any of us who are taking this meal. We would love to tell you about our friend Jesus. I'm going to pray and then ask for the believers to come down on my left-hand side. We'll take from the bread and dip it in the cup and then return to my seat, to your seat along my right-hand side. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.